Luke 2 as we look at the birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus, the most powerful Caesar, the very first Caesar of the Roman Empire, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at the time that this is mentioned, and was able to, from his lips in Rome, issue an edict that could be carried out as far as the backwater rural village in Nazareth, Syria, Palestine itself. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Uh, Luke actually writes administrator of Syria, which is somewhat important because it may have been while he was administrator of Syria rather than governor of Syria that this census actually took place. We have better historical evidence that the census would have taken place when Quirinius was serving in another capacity other than governor in Syria. Everyone went to their own town to register. As a side note, some have argued that this was not the way censuses were taken in the ancient world, and there was no need for people to go back to their original town. Why do they need to do that when they could just simply be counted where they actually live at the time? Uh, there have been many attacks, obviously, on the gospel, and many attacks even on Luke as an historian. However, this was an interesting one because while this attack was leveled against Luke, there later came a, a, a document that is a, uh, an original document of a census taken during the same time in Egypt. And in that document, giving the instructions of how the census was to be carried out, the very same decree was issued whereby everybody needed to go back to their hometown in order to be counted in the great Roman census that was that was given at that time. Uh, so, again, any, anybody who was trying to undermine Luke as an accurate historian were rebuffed when later on this document surfaced showing how censuses were taken at that time. And, and, and so they were called to go back to their hometown. So, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. It's about 90 miles and a lot of mountains. To Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, or betrothed. They were not yet married, and, and yet she was betrothed. That's more than engaged. That is basically marriage that has not yet been consummated. It is a bond that is so strong it would require a divorce for it to be broken, as, as the Gospel of Matthew even lets us see. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. 
I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Luke uses the term today 20 times, 11 times in Luke, 9 times in the book of Acts. And significantly, when he uses the term today, it marks a radical departure from what has been to what is now about to come. And in, especially throughout his uses of it in the, in the uh, Gospel of Luke, it often speaks of a salvation and a redemption that is being brought about in a new way at this time. And so when you hear today, there is a new thing that is being delivered to God's people. In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, to the shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly, of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. Now, the idea of a, a company of heavenly hosts, that is the, the word for a huge army. Heavenly host. Host means a huge army. And so in the sky, above the fields, outside of Bethlehem, where the shepherds were grazing their flocks, there appears filling the sky an entire army of angels making this proclamation, perhaps in song, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Let me stop at that phrase for one moment. Many have wondered why all of a sudden is this inserted? That Mary would ponder and treasure up and securely keep all of these memories in her heart. Well, some have also wondered, where did Luke get all of this brilliant eyewitness information from? Because he, Luke begins his gospel by saying, with this in mind, I carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account of you, most excellent Theophilus. And this is a, a nice thought that Mary... In, again, Deb and I were just in Ephesus, and there's quite a bit of, of tradition and historical evidence that Mary would have moved from Jerusalem to Ephesus when, when the Jews were dispersed from, uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, but Mary would have made her way to Ephesus with John. And the Apostle John ended up in Ephesus, ended up leading the church there in Ephesus. And it may have been that while Mary was in Ephesus... And, and Luke, likewise, having gone through Ephesus on the missionary journeys with Paul, would have had the opportunity to sit with her. And it was during these missionary journeys that Luke was writing both 
the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And it would have been that he would have had opportunity to sit with Mary and be able to capture all of the events of basically Luke chapter 2 and and Luke chapter 1. And that she may be our source for Luke to be able to have this inspired uh, gospel as it begins here. uh, So finishing from there, Mary treasured up all these things, pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. So this passage, the great passage of the birth of Jesus, the great passage where God, having tried everything to get our attention, now does something new. And in the today demarcation of time, That is, in this passage, God now sends His one and only Son to be humbled, to be humbled into the very form of a man, to grow up among us, and be able to provide reconciliation to the Creator of all things. But as this passage is laid out, there's an interesting contrast and comparison that begins. And it's a contrast and comparison between the great kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God. And at this very moment, we know that Jesus was born, according to Galatians 4, born at just the perfect time. The way Galatians talks about it, he was born at a time that was overflowingly perfect. The pleroma, the, uh, the, the, the perfection of all things having come together. And at this perfect time, the world was most ready to have the greatest act of love by God shown to them. But what was going on at the world this time? The peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. It is a time when the message is going to be able to spread far and wide through missionaries like Paul and Thomas and Peter as the the gospel is going to go over land, over the Roman roads that were built under the administration of the great Caesar Augustus that opens this passage. Suddenly, under the great Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the gospel spreads over land and is able to spread over sea. Pirates at sea are vanquished. And and bandits on the road are likewise brought under control by the great administration of the August One, Caesar Augustus. But not only that, Daniel tells us that it's during this time that a little boulder will be cut out of a rock and begin to roll down and become a great boulder that will strike a statue that Daniel speaks of. And if you remember that statue... It represented the great empires of the world. The head of gold represented Babylon. The chest and shoulders of silver represented the great empire of Persia under Xerxes. And then after that, Alexander the Great arises and he's depicted by the belly of bronze. Greece at its height in 330 BC rises up under Alexander the Great. And then ultimately... 
the legs and feet of bronze, but they were also of, uh, of, of steel, of iron. But they were iron and clay. And ultimately, that represented Rome which rose during uh, the, the 160s BC, but hit its peak and became an empire under Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor. Julius Caesar was not the first Roman emperor, uh, but, but uh, ultimately it, is, it does kind of, the Roman Senate grants that power to, to uh, Octavius, later known as Augustus Caesar. Now, my, my first point here is the August Caesar. There is no possible way to exaggerate the power of Caesar Augustus. He was born Gaius Octavius. He was born of parents who were, his dad was basically a knight of, uh, of sorts in the Roman Empire. But what he had going for him is that his dad died when he was four years old. And his stepfather didn't take much interest in him. And so... His mom's mother, or his grandmother, took a great interest in him. And he was basically raised by his grandmother. Who was his grandmother? His grandmother was Julia. Who was Julia? She was the sister of Julius Caesar. And as Julius Caesar began to rise in power and ultimately was, was killed on March 15th, the Ides of March, he in his will tipped the balance of power of who would begin to then reign in Rome. And if any of you have uh, read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, you know that there was Brutus and Cassius and Mark Antony, and they were all vying for, 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 for power there. But by Julius Caesar adopting, and this is what he did in his will, he adopted Gaius Octavius Caesar and made him his sole heir thereby giving him great financial resources, but then also allowing him ultimately to become a senator. The Senate gave him the ability to become a commander of, the, of Roman armies. He had control over two legions, later greater legions. He ended up in a uh, kind of a triumvirate situation with Mark Antony, the same Mark Antony who you know, hooked up with Cleopatra, and they married, and they formed an alliance, uh, but also with Lepidus, and it formed a triumvirate. Ultimately, it came down to a, a struggle between Mark Antony and Augustus, and Augustus was able to vanquish Mark Antony and Cleopatra soon after a great naval battle where he was able to, to destroy their great navy he was then the sole leader of the Roman Empire. Mark Antony and Cleopatra, by the way, killed themselves right after that. But, but Augustus then rose to become the, the emperor. And at that point, having become the emperor, he then took on the name Gaius Julius Caesar Octavius. When, when becoming emperor, added Augustus to his name. But then as his power grew, in 42 B.C., Following the deification of Julius Caesar, in, in other words, because they thought he, he was descended from Venus of sorts, according to d different accounts, there was this thought that now we have Caesar, Julius Caesar, as a god, because the Romans liked their heroes to have a great lineage. And as a matter of fact, even with Augustus Caesar, it is said that Virgil, the greatest of Roman poets, wrote a prophecy about him that under Augustus Caesar 
would come the great peace, the great peace of Rome. But, but I'm getting ahead of myself. In 42 BC, Augustus added two more words to his official title. And they were Divi Filius, which is son of God. And so you have in the days of the son of God of Luke 2, according to the empire of the world, the kingdoms of the world, the great son of God issued a decree. And this man, the most powerful man on earth, at the moment of Luke chapter 2 verse 1, is able to move around all the subjects of the Roman Empire, far flung as it is down to Egypt, to Syria, all across the Mediterranean basin. And when an edict comes off of his mouth, it is executed even in the backwater rural town, as I said, of Nazareth itself. Caesar Augustus had coins minted, which on one side said Julius the God, and on the other side, with his depiction, the Son of God. It was during his reign that Rome reached its peak. Roads were built, administration was tight, and through that time, Rome, for the first time, felt a peace around all of its borders. It was the time of the greatest security, the zenith of the Roman Empire. The first time that the Senate was able to put all of its trust into one man and declare him the ultimate authority, the great sovereign, their Lord, and ultimately giving him the title Deus et Dominus. Lord and God. A title given to Caesar Augustus, ruler of the greatest kingdom of the world. And it is during this time that while he is the most powerful man on earth in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, by the time that we get to Luke chapter 2, verse 7, he no longer is. Because she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And the son of God is actually born and comes to earth for us. But interestingly, while Augustus Caesar has all the trappings of power, Jesus has none. As a matter of fact, as we encounter Jesus, he is the son of a simple laborer, perhaps a carpenter, perhaps a, a stonemason. It's just the term builder. Joseph could have been either of those things. That's his earthly father in appearance. But his mother is a teenage mom. And she's going to give birth basically to a son that was conceived out of wedlock as far as all of society could tell. 
And while we have Augustus at this very moment, at the peak of his powers, we have in contrast this little baby. And this little baby being forced to be born 90 miles from his hometown of Nazareth, having to schlep southern, but also way up to the mountain region of Judea. Many day journey, 90 miles, but you can't travel many miles, especially when you're that pregnant. And so perhaps traveling over the course of two weeks to be able to get there in order to be counted in the census. And she arrives, and it says that um, that when she arrives, she gives birth, and he is wrapped in cloths and placed in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. The new NIV says guest room. We have in in, in other translations. This this idea of a uh, of a of an inn, you know, makes for nice Christmas cards, and it makes for nice stories. That you know, there there's Joseph and Mary knocking on all the doors. And, and everybody saying to them, you know, the no vacancy sign suddenly comes flashing in neon lights. But, but just as that's, you know, an anachronistic uh, abnormality uh, to have a flashing sign, so would have been the idea that people going back to the very hometown of all their relatives would, would basically have a hand to the face, you know, talk to the hand uh, to a, a woman who is nine months pregnant. The Jewish idea of community and family ran much too deep for that to in any way be the case. When Jesus has the Last Supper prepared, the word that is used for in is also the same word that's simply used for the upper room of a house, kataluma. And when the, the upper room is where Jesus would have the, the um, Last Supper prepared, in Luke 22 he uses the same word. And really what the, the in or what the, the room was was basically the Kataluma, or in a typical Palestinian home, they, they were all built on hills, especially in Bethlehem, especially in Judea. Everything is very hilly there. And so normally what you'd have is the main family room where everything happens. All the cooking, all the happenings, all the gatherings happen in the family room. And then a little lower than that, over here, would have been a room that was kind of, a, kind of an indoor-outdoor room and this is where animals would be brought in, especially during the colder months. And so down here would be where the animals were. Here is the family room. And at just the right level for the animals would have been feeding troughs at the end of the family room. And so while you're in the family room, you could just simply feed the animals at the end of that room. They would come in. They would go out. Especially in the colder months, it was good to have them in because they would actually help to add to the body heat uh, of the room. Now, that's the main family room. But the living quarters where you would sleep, that was the Cataluma. The Cataluma would have then been above that, either on a second floor or on a hilly slope, the, the, the next level up in a house. So you'd have the sleeping quarters or the guest room, the main family room, at the end of the main family room, the feeding troughs or mangers, and then at the bottom of that, the place where the animals would be held. Okay? Boom, boom, boom. Right? You hanging with me? So, what most likely was the case is that one of Mary or Joseph's family members said to them, I don't have room in the guest room because it's already packed out with everybody, but you can stay in the main family room. And so they stayed in the main family room, and when Jesus was born, at the end of the main family room 
would have been the, the, uh, the mangers or the feeding troughs, which have been just the right size where you could put then a baby. And I'm sure they cleaned it out as wonderfully as possible before. I mean, yes, we want to picture Jesus out in some barn in a wheelbarrow, you know, that, that's disgusting and oh my goodness, how is it? That is likely not the case. It would have been very much family taking care of family as best they could at that very moment of time. If I've totally messed up your view of Christmas, I am so sorry, but it is what it is. But nonetheless, this is the humble beginnings of the Son of God. And then when his birth is announced, normally it would be announced with musicians, minstrels. And this is always the tradition, a Jewish tradition, when a child is born. And if it's a son, oh, they lose their mind if it's a son. And it's a son, and a son is born. They knew it already because the angel had told them. But the son is born, and normally the family would celebrate with the minstrels, being able to celebrate with music. But because they were on the road, because they had been pushed off to a, a new place by the great Caesar Augustus for the, his census to be able to count up how great his empire was and to get some tax money. Uh, because of all of that, they weren't able to have these minstrels. But here's a beautiful thought. Instead of having those minstrels, what did they have instead? The entire host of heavenly angels singing the greatest song of celebration, announcing the new birth, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Here's also something interesting. Who was it that was able to be the first witnesses of the arrival of the Son of God? We know who the first witnesses were of the resurrection of the Son of God. Women. Women were. Luke makes sure to give us that, and we'll, by the time we get to Luke, 22, 23 uh, years from now, as we make our way through this, we will, we will see that. Here's what's interesting, is as witnesses, those women, their testimony would not be admissible in court at that time. But that's who God chooses to be the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Who does God choose to be the witnesses of the incarnation of the Son of God? The enfleshment of God in Jesus. Shepherds. Shepherds likewise. Had such a, a low estimation by society. They were of the lowest class. Interesting, these shepherds would have been the fields outside of Bethlehem. The very place where David was a shepherd. And in those same fields, they would have been preparing lamb, likely, sheep for sacrifice. Because in that area, only a few miles, only seven miles from the temple itself, by the way, Bethlehem to Jerusalem, uh, the, these likely would have been sacrificial sheep. And, and ultimately, the announcement of Jesus by John the Baptist is, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. But these shepherds are the ones that see the great light show in the sky, and the sound and the fury of the very army of heaven causes them a fright that is so deep, but yet is then reassured by the gracious hand of God for them to be able to hear this great good news. This is good news, a great joy to all people. 
a Savior, Messiah, Lord. All of these words would have rung through those shepherds like shockwaves. Because it's at this time, under the oppression of the Roman Empire, which is only growing in its power under the great Caesar Augustus, it is at this time where every Jew longed in their prayers, longed in their, in their celebration of the Passover each year, longed for the arrival of the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, the one who could throw off this yoke of oppression. Who could it be? And messianic fever ran high. And for these shepherds to hear, guess who's been born? Guess what has come today? The Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, the good news, and peace. The peace that you have so long desired. Peace, shalom, has finally come to you. Shalom to them is not just the absence of strife. It is the presence of all good things. All is put right with our lives, with one another, and with God when shalom is announced. And so it is here. Now here's what's interesting. In this humble arrival of Jesus, it had to happen to fulfill a prophecy that is given of where Jesus would be born. Now in Micah 5, the prophet Micah writes, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Micah 5.2 Now here's what's interesting, by the way. In order for Jesus to end up in Bethlehem, it required Caesar Augustus to issue his edict. It wasn't something that Joseph thought, hey, you know what? This is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to rule over Israel. I better get myself and my pregnant bride up the road to Bethlehem to sweet. If this thing's going to be fulfilled. It wasn't. Most of the prophecies about Jesus require his enemies to act in order for them to be fulfilled. Wow. Here's an interesting stat that, that um, was undertaken in the late 60s. Professor Peter Stoner was a professor emeritus at Westmont College. And there he was uh, talking with different classes of, of math students uh, dealing with statistical problems. And so he put before them eight main prophecies about Jesus that Jesus would have to fulfill. And he wasn't going about this in a religious approach. As a matter of fact, nor were these theology students. They were simply doing statistical work. And of these 12 classes, which constituted somewhere around 600 students, he had them calculate the probability of one man fulfilling all eight of those basic prophecies. Never mind that there are hundreds of prophecies. Let's just take the eight most basic ones, including would be one of those, the chance of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And so they looked at the, you know, the face of the earth, the number of people on earth, the different places, and the probability that he would be born there in Bethlehem as one of the probabilities. And then they went through the list of, of, of the other main probabilities that the Old Testament lays out. He then took all of their data, 
made it more conservative, and then sent it to his peers for peer review. And ultimately, it was, it was reviewed in a scientific journal, and the final probability that they came up with was one chance in 10 to the 17th power of one person being able to fulfill that. That's a number way beyond anything that we can comprehend. So to be able to dimensionalize that number, Peter Stoner came up with this visualization that's somewhat famous. Maybe you've heard it. He says, here's, here's the number 1 times 10 to the 17th power. It would be the number of silver dollars that would be required to fill the face of Texas two feet deep. So, you know, so up past your knees, silver dollars all throughout the state. Now, and then take one of those silver dollars and put a small mark on it. And then take the whole thing and stir it up real good. And then take one of you, blindfold you, parachute you in to Texas, and you rummage around as long as you like, and the chance of one man fulfilling just these eight basic prophecies, and all of those statistics are then brought down to a more conservative number, the chance of Jesus fulfilling all of those prophecies is more remote than you landing in Texas, pulling out one of those silver coins, and it happens to be the one that has the mark on it. That's how amazing this is. And this is just one small peek into the, the idea that this is not just by chance. And so you have, in the end here, the great August Caesar having to serve the humble Christ. And in the end, something amazing happens. And one of the, one of the great historians when I was a kid was Will Durant. He and his wife wrote the great books of, uh, of Western civilization. And interestingly, in, in this book, he writes at the end of a book, one of his books is called Caesar and Christ. And, and all of his books are award-winning. And he was actually not a Christian, by the way, nor was he a believer. But when, when, when he was asked, what was the high point of civilization through all of your studies? He answered, the three years that Jesus walked on the earth. And when he finished his book, Caesar in Christ, he wrote, there is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors bearing all trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, building, uh, I'm sorry, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last, defeating the strongest state that history has known. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena, and Christ had won. Matter of fact, Julian the Apostate, he was Roman Emperor from 361 to 363. He wrote with regards to, uh, he was one of the, the most eloquent critics of Christianity. He wrote, Jesus has now been celebrated about 300 years, 
having done nothing in his lifetime worthy of fame, unless anyone thinks it's a great a very great work to heal lame and blind people and exercise demoniacs in the villages of Bethsaida and Bethany. Julian, at the end of his life, is quoted as having said on his deathbed, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean, the great emperor of the 360s. Napoleon, the great emperor of the French wrote, you speak of Caesar, of Alexander, of their conquests and enthusiasm, which they kindled in the hearts of their soldiers. But can you conceive of a dead man making conquests with an army faithful and entirely devoted to his memory? My armies have forgotten me even while living, as the Carthaginian army has forgotten Hannibal. Such is our power. I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander the Great, Augustus Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have all founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions would die for him. I search in vain History defined similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach his gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor ages nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary, writes Napoleon. And so in this humble beginning comes the Son of God, the true Son of God. The Roman Empire is long gone. Its greatness, nothing more than a memory. The facts about Caesar Augustus, probably unfamiliar to you, even now, though he be the greatest of all Roman emperors. But Jesus, Jesus comes in such a humble place. He was born in an obscure village, child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village, where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from his little village. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials except himself. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial, nailed to a cross between thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus is the central figure of the human race. The leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as one solitary, selfless, loving life. That is Jesus. And the peace that he brings is a peace that can only come By us surrendering to him. If we hope for peace as the great peace of Rome, even in Augustus' lifetime, 
the Germanic tribes revolted massively along the Rhine River and demolished two whole legion of, of, uh, of Roman soldiers. And the great peace of Rome was illusory, even in his lifetime. If that's the peace that you want, a peace that is financial, a peace from your job, a peace in your marriage, a peace in your, in your home. If, if you're looking for it in any sort of humanistic, physical way, you will likewise be wanting in the end. This humble beginning is the only peace, the only shalom that can be ours. And as we see the great effect that has blossomed from this simple, humble life, that has changed the landscape of mankind. It's time for us to fall on our knees in amazement of what it is that Jesus brings. And to recognize that if we want peace, we need to look at full surrender. Unconditional surrender. No more managing our sins. No more managing our alliances or allegiances. All of that given up to Christ. No more pride trying to manage our reputation or our appearance. All of that turned over to Christ. Let this season be a time where we renew our recognition for really who is the greatest of all time. Who is the one that can bring us the good news to all mankind? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Time to surrender. Time for peace. Amen.